choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 267 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Houston, We've Had a Problem, Part 2, Mission Control's Perspective. Before we continue from the previous episode, I thought it would be interesting to examine the first few minutes of the crisis from the perspective of Mission Control. Most of the clips you will hear in this episode come from the flight director's communications loop with his controllers. In this case, the flight director is Gene Krantz. Inside the Mission Control Center, one cannot see, smell, feel, or touch a crisis except through the telemetry and the crew's voice reports. During a crisis in any spaceflight, particularly a flight as complex as a lunar mission, the men in the spacecraft and the men on the ground operate in a sort of hierarchy of denial. When a spacecraft has suddenly had multiple failures, it is the pilots who are at the center of the problem. It was they who heard the bang and witnessed the venting or saw the instrument panel readings go diminishing into nothing. And so it was they who usually had the most pessimistic view of the crisis. Though no pilot is ever anxious to abandon his ship or abort his mission, no pilot wants to push his craft beyond where his experience and his senses tell him it is able to go. Next in line were the individual console controllers in Houston. For the most part, none of these men had ever been in the spacecraft themselves and from the beginning of their careers had only the numbers on their screens to tell them what was wrong with the ship in their charge. Unlike the men inside the spacecraft, the controllers knew that their lives, health, and immediate future were not intimately bound up with the life, health, and immediate future of the spacecraft. And while this sometimes led them to have more faith in a sick spacecraft, than the spacecraft truly deserved, it also provided them with a problem-solving detachment that the astronauts could not hope to have. Furthest removed from the problem, but ultimately responsible for getting it resolved, was the flight director. In addition to all the written rules that governed a mission, the flight director operated under an unwritten rule known as downmoding. Before a mission was officially aborted, the doctrine of downmoding required the flight director to preserve as much of it as he could without endangering the lives of the astronauts. If a crew couldn't land on the moon, could they at least orbit it? 
If they couldn't orbit, could they at least whip around the far side to take some hurried sightings? Getting out as far as the lunar neighborhood was a complicated, expensive job, and if the primary goals of the project could not be met, it was up to the man in charge to have some secondary and tertiary goals in mind. Only when the last options for a downmoded mission were exhausted would the flight director give up on the mission and bring his crew home. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. By the time Flight Director Krantz heard Lovell's report of Houston, we've had a problem, three controllers had reported related problems. Krantz was wondering which problem Lovell was reporting as he started relaying the long list of warning indicators from the spacecraft's displays. At first, the reports and Krantz experience indicated an electrical glitch. Initially, Krantz believed they could quickly solve the problem and get back on track. Instead, a true crisis had begun. Events followed in rapid succession, escalating and complicating the problems as the crew's situation became increasingly perilous. It was 15 minutes before Mission Control began to comprehend the full scope of the crisis. In the first minutes of the crisis, the reports continued, but nothing made sense. Each controller stared incredulously at his display and reported new pieces to add to the puzzle. It took extra seconds sorting out what was real and credible. It appeared the spacecraft was losing oxygen and with it the fuel cells, the major source of power. When that happened, the crew would lose control of the main propulsion system. In all, the what-if simulations before each moon mission, a disabled spacecraft was invented. The solution was usually to fire up the big SPS engine, change trajectory, and get back home by the fastest route. In some of these solutions, the lunar module became a lifeboat, but nobody thought of this problem. Where an explosion wrecked the oxygen tanks, the fuel cells were gone, sensors and instruments were destroyed, and nobody could tell if the SPS engine was still good or not. Any firing could be disastrous. Nothing remotely like this had ever been in a simulation. As Mission Control watched the capsule's life-sustaining resources disappear, the voices of the crew were still calm and restrained. It was as if they were reporting something that was no big deal. From all sides of the capsule, Hayes, Swigert, and Lovell were continuing the dialogue, giving Mission Control the cockpit meter readings and warning light indicators. Then there was a call from Gary Scott, ENCO, Instrumentation and Communications. He said the antenna had switched beam width at the exact time of the power problem. And Carl, this seems to be AC type problems and maybe tied into that tie gain thing you got. We went, went to wide beam with flight at 55, 55.04, the best okay. we can tell. Krantz became convinced that the problem was an electrical short caused by another antenna glitch. Again, he took the wrong fork in the road. 
believing that they would be back on track shortly. Five minutes after the event, the significance of the crew's words hit Krantz. We had a pretty large bang. GNC, Buck Willoughby, unflappable, started speaking to Krantz slowly, evenly, and without a hint of emotion. Roger. Go ahead, GNC. Verify that the quad delta helium valves are open. Now, are you seeing an attitude problem, or are you seeing some uh, uh, by levels that are giving you problems? No, it's some low pressures in the, the fuel and oxidizer, uh, which would be symptomatic of the helium valve closing and, and firing some jets. Quad number two, helium valve open? Quad delta. Quad delta. Helium valve open, right? Right. Capcom, do you want to verify that quad delta helium valve is open, please? Any right. other problems in the RCS? Buck. Buck's call started Krantz down a different path. Krantz recalled back on Apollo 9 when the pyrotechnic shock from separating the command and service module from the Saturn 4B booster had accidentally closed the fuel valves. But the bang heard by the Apollo 13 crew must have been awfully big to cause the propellant valves to close. From this moment on, Krantz proceeded more deliberately and methodically. Mission control was six minutes into the crisis. A frustrated Capcom, Jack Lausma, called on the flight director's loop. Okay, uh, is that all we come up with for him? Uh, we got any other recommendations? Yeah, we wanted to get fuel cell one configured to main A, fuel cell three to main B. Did you pass that up? Let's attempt that flight. Lausma echoed everyone's feelings in mission control. They were making no progress. Virtually every controller still had problems, but no one could see a pattern in all of this. For Krantz, it was like living a bad dream, with every event taking place in slow motion. The frustration of the crew and controllers was starting to creep into their voices. Everything they knew about the spacecraft, all that they had learned about the design, precluded this kind of massive failure. The data told them they were looking at multiple simultaneous failures. Two possible fuel cells were down, both oxygen tanks depleted, and they had an undetermined attitude control problem that was pushing the two spacecraft around. Soon the command module would lose power. When that happened, they would lose everything. But... The teamwork in mission control under a crisis was excellent, while ECOM, Cy Libergott, Lausma, and Krantz worked the electrical options with the crew. The remaining controllers were making their inputs to Capcom, correcting their smaller problems. While sensing the urgency of the electrical problems, they tended their own business, protecting their systems and giving crisp, brief reports so as not to disturb or aggravate the resolution of the main problem. Inco Gary Scott watched the antenna signal strengths like a hawk. He knew that the crew did not have time to point and select antenna. Gary recommended a fallback to the less powerful but adequate omni antennas. Through the critical first hour, until help arrived, he called out each antenna switch, protecting his vital link as the docked command and service module and lunar module drifted out of control and were pushed around by some force mission control could not identify. 
If he had missed once, communications would have been lost and the crew and control team would have been diverted from critical task. Scott, like many others, made hero category by his patient, timely, undistracted management of the data stream. It was now 10 minutes into the crisis. All the bosses had gone home after the crew's TV show, so Krantz needed to notify top management that they had a big problem on their hands and that they didn't fully understand what it was. Turning to Lunny, Krantz asked him to call Chris Kraft. Lunny handed Krantz the phone as Chris's wife, Betty Ann, answered. Krantz asked to speak with Kraft. In response, Betty Ann said, Gene, Chris is in the shower right now. Can I have him call you back? No, I don't think you can. I need him to get out right away, Krantz said. Betty Ann hurried to the bathroom and brought the dripping craft to the phone. Krantz told him that they had a major electrical problem and that he believed Apollo 13 had lost one or more fuel cells. Krantz concluded on a somewhat desperate note. Chris, you better get here quick. I think we've had it. Kraft, who had known Krantz for years, did not know his protege and successor to declare a crisis when there was no crisis, or to sound urgent when there was no reason to sound urgent. More important, he surely didn't know him to call for backup counsel when there was no need for backup counsel, but now he was making that call. Former flight director Kraft, who'd grown tired of Mission Control's hot seat, threw his clothes on, raced out of his house, still half wet, and jumped into his car. He made the 10-mile ride to the Space Center in less than 15 minutes, sometimes pushing 60 miles per hour on the darkened roads of the quiet suburb that had just begun drifting off to sleep. GNC and Guido, Willoughby and Will Finner, had been quietly watching the crew struggle to control the spacecraft attitude and avoid gimbal lock. This grave problem would have come about if the rings that support the whirling wheels of the gyroscope all aligned in the same position. If that occurred, the command module would then no longer have a usable reading from the gyroscopic platform. In gimbal lock, the crew would be unable to maneuver or point the spacecraft. They would be literally adrift in space until the crew took a fix on certain stars to realign the gyros, much in the way a 19th century sailing ship figured out its position. Every time the crew got close to the danger point, Willoughby, in a hushed but forceful voice, would call, Flight, they are getting close to gimbal lock. Capcom would advise the crew, who then used the command and service module hand controller and attitude jets to maneuver away from disaster. Flight guidance. Go guidance. He's getting close to gimbal lock. Capcom. Okay, Capcom recommend he bring up C3, C4, B3, B4, C1, C2, and main A and advise him he's getting close to gimbal lock. 13 Houston, uh, we see you getting close to gimbal lock. Krantz's team was now functioning well. They were 14 minutes into the crisis, fighting a delaying action until they figured out what was going on and what to do about it. Most of the problems seemed to rest on Libergot's shoulders. He was responsible for the systems needed to sustain life 
power, water, oxygen, and pressure. But no matter what mission control tried, they were unable to stop the hemorrhage of fuel cell oxygen reactants. Then, abruptly, all the pieces came together. Lovell called in and said, Yeah, that's, that's a good thing to see. And it looks to me, looking out the uh, hatch, that we are venting something. We are, uh, we are venting something out uh, into the uh, into space. Roger, we copy your venting. It's a gas of some sort. A shock ripped through the control room as they recognized that an explosion somewhere in the service module had taken out the cryogenic and fuel cells. The controllers felt they were toppling into an abyss. Needless to say, the lunar mission was now a no-go. The only thought on Krantz's mind was survival, how to buy the seconds and minutes to give the crew a chance to return to Earth. Krantz called out on the voice loop, Okay, let's everybody think of the kind of things we'd be venting. GNC, you got anything that looks abnormal in your system? Negative five. How about you, Ecom? You see anything that, uh, with the instrumentation you got that could be venting? That's a fine Let me look at the system flight as far as the venting is concerned. Okay, let's start scanning. I assume you've called in your backup Ecoms? Ecom? Flight, say again. Have you called in your backup ECOMs now? See if we can get some more brain power in this We thing? got one here. Roger. Now Krantz was angry at himself that he had wasted 15 precious minutes by not assembling the pieces sooner. Somewhere, somehow, an oxygen tank exploded and it caused a lot of collateral damage. The feeling of self-reproach passed quickly though. Krantz was too well trained to keep this feeling long. He had a job to do now, and anger could wait for later. Mission Control's only objective from here on out was survival. The crew's only hope was Mission Control. Krantz's team had to start the turnaround. With two flight controller teams in the room, the level of chatter was distracting. Krantz's team needed to get back on the voice comm and get focused. He finally took charge, standing up, he yelled across the top of the consoles. Okay, all flight controllers, cut the chatter. I want every member of the white team to settle down and get back on the voice loops. The rest of you, shut up. Then Krantz spoke on his comm loop. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached, the limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. Krantz's team now focused on keeping the crew alive and finding a way to get them home. Their determination was evident as they calculated the limited resources available in the damaged spacecraft. For the moment, the power and oxygen available in the command and service module could keep the crew alive, but the lunar module was ultimately the only safe haven, even though it had been designed 
to accommodate only two men for two days. Krantz knew he had to move quickly to stabilize the situation and then hand over the remnants of the mission to Lunny's team. Krantz wanted to review all the data. He had an absolutely chilling fear that he had missed something important. He hoped some fresh minds might pick up on it. He wanted to get the white team offline, get them together in a quiet corner, discover the cause, and then start on a plan to rescue the crew. Krantz's team was the lead team, so it was their responsibility to take over management of the crisis. By now, Krantz's console was a mess, littered with schematics, procedures, the console log, and cigarette butts. Lunny's team was scurrying around the room preparing for handover. Glint Burton, Libregot's replacement, nervously awaited his turn in what had become the hot seat. Ed Findell, who managed communications, joined Gary Scott at the console. Together, they would keep up the communications, the key to an orderly transfer to the lunar module. Findell had been at home and had just happened to have the radio on. He heard the news, jumped in his car, and came in, racing his Corvette through the back streets of Clear Lake, Texas. Findell arrived in a cloud of dust and parked in the middle of the exit lane. He joined in the battle with Scott, making sure that communication with the crew would be maintained without interruption throughout the crisis. Krantz was glad to see him. He did not know how much longer Scott could continue running solo with the communications. As Lovell and Swigert struggled with the attitude of the ship, Krantz continued to pace behind his console, juggling numerous other problems that were competing for his attention. On his flight director's loop, Enco called to report that he was having a nightmare of a time trying to keep the antennas aligned on the lurching, power-poor ship. The Guidance and Navigation Control, GNC, called to say that he was coming dangerously close to developing a thermal imbalance. As one part of the spacecraft stayed too long in the direct glare of the sun, Ecom reported that the welter of power and oxygen problems that had started this whole mess had not stabilized themselves, and by all signs were getting worse. Of all of the status updates, it was these Ecom reports that claimed most of Krantz's attention. According to Cy Libergot, Oxygen Tank 2 which had mysteriously vanished at 55 hours and 54 minutes into the mission, indeed appeared to be gone for good. Tank 1, which had begun the evening in the pink at a pressure of 860 pounds per square inch, was now down to close to half that and was losing pressure at better than a pound per minute. Fuel cells 1 and 3 were all but gone. Fuel cell 2 was dying fast, and as the remaining fuel cell faded, the remaining bus, main bus A, faded with it. As the spacecraft continued to operate with all its power-gobbling hardware up and running, the whole precarious system threatened to collapse under the load. It was now 19 minutes into the crisis.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 267 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13. Houston, we've had a problem, part two. Mission Control's Perspective. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. I want to announce that the last 50 episodes of the podcast are now available on Spotify. I'm not sure why Spotify limits it to the last 50, but I am glad to have another service available for the podcast. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Episodes 1 through 83 are available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors, who honor your pledge this month. Let's go for 100% retention. Okay, I had a couple afterthoughts here. First, I want to credit my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz. Flight by Chris Craft, Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, the Apollo 13 Flight Journal, the Johnson Space Center, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. On this episode, I felt we needed to have Mission Control's perspective on the problem starting from the beginning. So, I went back to the point of the explosion and examined the crisis starting there and the resolutions that Mission Control had. I hope I didn't confuse anybody by doing that. Next week, we will begin right where we left off, about 19 minutes after the explosion. Most of this episode comes from Gene Krantz's book, Failure is Not an Option. Now, Krantz is awfully hard on himself in his own book. He, to his credit, clearly states in his book when he took the wrong path to solving the problem. I still don't think anyone could have done it any better. If you listen to the flight director's loop throughout the crisis, Krantz got reports constantly on his headset, and he had to make some very fast decisions as to a course of action. And once the decision was made, Capcom, Lausma, does an excellent job of getting that info up to the spacecraft. There was a lot going on during the early minutes after the explosion. So my hat is off to Krantz and his team. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive seven new donations to support the podcast over the past week. James M. donated at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. Futurama King donated at the Sputnik level and earned his shooting star emoji. Trevor R. donated at the Soyuz level. Jerry A. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Muriel L. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Michael K. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And Monday R. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. During the dog days of summer, our Patreon donors are at 182, with a goal of reaching 218 by the end of the year. And our overall donors have reached 319 with a goal of reaching 418 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, 
please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going, especially during the dreaded dog days of summer. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. Now, for those of you who have already donated for 2018, I appreciate it very much. And this week, we're giving away the official SRH logo magnet. It is three inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select a winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Mike Warner. Mike Warner, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received 25 new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past few weeks. I want to thank Stephen A., J. Mansfield 1212, A.R.R.A.D.U., Mommy 1787, and Andrew 5DMII for the very kind reviews and five-star ratings, and also the 20 other anonymous people who gave the podcast the all-important five-star rating. Thank you very much for doing that. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I will try to get episode 268 out by next Thursday. So long for now.